Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And this is the next in our series of 2020 mini-episodes. During this time of social distancing, we realized that a lot of our favorite authors and artists would not be able to promote their new books. We've spoken with incredible creators of middle grade and YA and graphic novels and picture books, and we're really excited to share this with you. Please enjoy this slight deviation from our regular content and remember to buy from your local independent bookstores. We continue our series with the extremely prolific Kate Messner. Hello there. Hello. Hi. <laughs> it's Kate. How are you? We're great. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Um, we're not entirely sure where to start because just on July 7th, you have three books coming out, of course, but you have so many books coming out this year. We just want to hear about as many of them as you'd like to tell us. Yeah, I'm happy. It's a wild year and of all years to have a lot of books releasing. I'm like, can't we spread them out a little bit and get some of them out of the pandemic? But of course, that's not how book releases work. So so you have 12 this year. Is that right? I do. I do. Wow. It's a little bit wild. Um, most of those are part of series. So um, you know, either ongoing series or, um, you know, I have one series wrapping up with with two books this year. I have another series launching with three books in 2020. So most of them are are here because it's uh, they're part of a series, an ongoing series. But a few are standalones. And yeah, it's just everything sort of landed on this year. But it's it's interesting. It's a, a, a wild mix of books. You know, there's a novel, there's some science nonfiction. There's a new series that's middle grade history nonfiction. Um, Just, you know, a couple picture books. It's a a mix of just about everything. Well, I'll tell you, I am such a ridiculously huge fan of Over and Under the Snow. I am thrilled to know that Over and Under the Rainforest is coming out, which I know is not until August 11th, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, which isn't too far away. It's not. It's not. You're right. I, I just, it feels like a long time when you're like, I want it now. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm really, really excited about that one. Chris and I, ever since we started working together on these books, have had just the best time. And that whole um, old story about the author and the illustrator are always kept very far apart and work independently. We've sort of like dropped that. And so um, anytime it's, you know, we, it's, time to talk about a new over and under book I'm always reaching out to Chris saying what do you think what do you want to draw I was thinking about this or maybe this and so we we go back and forth a little bit and uh, we're both just so excited about the rainforest book Um, I've been to the the rainforest in Costa Rica several times to to do research for this one and um, it's just a place like no other Uh, the animals that you see in the Costa Rica rainforest from the toucans to the snakes and the poison dart frogs and you know, the uh, the leaf cutter ants. It's just such an incredible life-filled place. And uh, Chris's art for this book just captures that so beautifully, I think. If it is anything near as good as his previous illustrations, it's just gorgeous. I think it's even better. He gets a little better with every book, I swear. <laughs> Another one that I actually really enjoyed, it's already out. I know that's not one of the ones that's that's being released close to when this podcast episode will come out but it came out in February is Chirp but I really love it and I think that um, if people are looking for recommendations um, this would be a good one to look into Um, can you tell them a little bit about that 
Sure. Chirp is, well, it's a lot of things. It's a, it's a fun summer mystery that's set on a cricket farm in Vermont. And cricket farming, many people are surprised to learn, is a real thing. You can eat farmed crickets. Uh, and they're good for you and they're good for the environment, which I found fascinating when I started reading about this uh, entomophagy movement, the uh, this movement to get people to consider insects as part of their diets because they are such a, a good source of healthy protein. And also they're so much more sustainable to raise than other things we like to eat for protein like cows and pigs and chickens. And so um, I visited a cricket farm in Vermont, a, a startup farm, and that was really the spark for this book because it was so fascinating. Uh, and I love writing mysteries. And I thought, well, what a, an interesting setting for a mystery this would be. So uh, Chirp is a mystery. Somebody is trying to sabotage the main character's grandmother's cricket farm. And uh, Mia, the main character, and her friends uh, go all Nancy Drew this summer trying to figure out who it is. They do a lot of sleuthing, just a little bit of breaking and entering uh, and try to figure <laughs> that out. Um, but also Chirp is a Me Too story, Me Too for middle grade, um, because the main character, Mia, moves from Boston back to Vermont where she lives before. And when she moves, she brings with her a secret um, about you know inappropriate um, behavior from the gymnastics coach at her old gym. And she just hasn't told anybody what happened. Um, and so little by little, she meets new friends and she's in part of this warrior camp and a camp for young entrepreneurs too, and gains all kinds of strength. Uh, but most importantly, maybe the strength to find her voice and speak up about what happened. Uh, so there's a lot going on in the book. Like I said, it's a fun summertime mystery, but with some more serious elements too. Um, and I've been thrilled with the feedback, uh, what I'm hearing so many families reading this book together and having just great conversations, uh, which is everything I hoped for when I wrote it. Yeah, I, you know, there's not a lot of books that I managed to sort of get into the rotation before everything happened and we had to stay home, but I really enjoyed reading that, which it sounds weird to say that you really enjoyed reading something about difficult issues, but um, it, it was, it was really readable as well as valuable. So that was nice. I'm glad it was enjoyable too. It's meant to be a fun book. Um, and, and I'm kind of pushing back a little bit on the idea that books that deal with serious issues have to be all gloom and doom, because let's face it, so many of us deal with these issues in our real lives and dealt with issues like this growing up. And our lives were not all gloom and doom just because, um, you know, something bad happens or something difficult happens. Um, you know, kids still have joy. And I think that's really important to include the joy and the laughter and the hijinks um, right alongside the, the struggles. So I'm, I'm thrilled to hear you say that. For the writing of Chirp, did you actually eat um, a cricket? <laughs> oh, more than one, yes. So the, the cricket farm where I did most of my research, I actually visited two different cricket farms, one in Vermont and one in Austin, Texas. Um, but the one in Vermont was a startup. And so they were just trying to get the message out and get people to sample crickets. And so they were having all kinds of open houses. So yeah, I sampled crickets in every iteration imaginable. I I had the uh, the sea salt and garlic roasted crickets, the maple crickets, the, um, the barbecue crickets, Crickets, the sriracha crickets, the Thai cricket pizza, the uh, the chocolate chirp cookies, which are cookies made with cricket flour, uh, even chocolate covered cricket ice cream, a little bit of everything. <laughs> oh, wow. Did you have a favorite? Well, I mean, if you cover anything in chocolate, I think it's pretty <laughs> great. So <laughs> probably the ice cream. 
That's we'll wonderful. have to put a link to one of the farms in the show notes so people can order some and try them. Yeah, yeah. Probably the best source is um, Aspire Food Group um, in Texas. Uh, it is offering those um, roasted salted crickets. They they offer roasted crickets in different flavors. Um, yeah, they're they're good to try. It's it once you get past the idea that you're consuming an insect, um, they taste like you know salty crispy sunflower seeds or something like that. Hmm. I'm not sure I'm brave enough. Getting past the idea. <laughs> Although, you know what? I love snails. I haven't had a snail. I figure, you know, garlic yeah. and butter, you can't go wrong. It's true. It's true. He thought of eating lobster, right? That doesn't, I mean, if you didn't know what it tasted like, it doesn't look like a thing you should eat. That's true. One of my very favorite things in the whole world is crab legs. And I had a best friend in high school who called them spiders of the sea. I think if it's ground up, I think I would be, I would be fine. I think it would, it would just be like, oh. You know, it's an a, another component, but I think like if you can see like its little like husk of the, of its eyes and its little antennae, I think I may. Yeah, I'm, and the I leg, may... the leg. Yeah, people. yeah. yeah. But yeah. it's cricket flour, which is like you know any other protein powder. It is uh, a lot of people to say that's a better better entry for your first time. Yeah, time. I think so. I'm very excited about the History Smashers uh, book that you have coming out on July 7th, um, Women's Right to Vote. Um, what kind of stories did you did you dig into in this book? Um, so the History Smashers series, it's actually a whole new series uh, with Random House. And the, the goal of the series is to undo some of the lies and myths that we teach young kids about history. So the first two books are Women's Right to Vote and History Smashers, The Mayflower. Um, so, you know, of course, the pilgrims are just shrouded in myth. Um, and a lot of those stories that we learn in preschool, you know, and we, we make our little construction paper pilgrim hats are just not at all what really happened. You know, they're, they're mythologies. And so I think it was really interesting for me um, knowing that and going into this research, knowing um, about a lot of the myths and about some of the things that we teach that are not quite what really happened. But even so, being aware of that, I was still really surprised by what I found. Um, and in particular with the Women's Right to Vote book, uh, just the, the history of voting rights. Um, you know, women in New Jersey had the right to vote when New Jersey first became a state because nobody's quite sure why. If they just forgot to specify in their <laughs> original state constitution, oh yeah, this should be only men. Uh, but anyway, they had the right to vote and then lost it because the oh. all-male legislature voted later on uh, to take it away, uh, because they were like, wait, women are voting. Did we mean to do that? And so uh, that, to me, was just fascinating and nothing I had ever learned. And so those women didn't regain the right to vote for, for decades and decades uh, you know, after the struggle. The other thing that really, uh, I shouldn't say surprised me, because I was aware of it, but not the extent of it, uh, was the racism of some of mm -hmm. our favorite suffra suffragists. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who are kind of the two, you know, big names that we think of when we think of the suffragist movement, both advocated fiercely against Black men getting the right to vote. They mm -hmm. fought the 15th Amendment tooth and nail. Uh, and I, you know, and, and in language that was just, pretty horrible and offensive. Um, you know, Susan B. Anthony even went on tour with a Northern white supremacist for a while. 
uh, you know, talking about why black men shouldn't have the right to vote. Uh, and so reading some of the words that came out of their mouths was was pretty, um, pretty intense. And, and you know, mm-hmm. I was aware of this, but not the extent of it. Um, and I think those those issues, you know, the complexities of history are really important to talk to kids about. Uh, and kids can handle so much more complexity sometimes than we give them credit for. It's really interesting. I was actually visiting a, a school in Vermont just before the pandemic started. It was one of my last school visits of the year. And I was having lunch with some second graders. And uh, one of the boys was telling me how much he loves picture books about history. And he, he loved the books that his librarian had been sharing for Black History Month. And I said, oh, you want to know one of my favorites? And so I told him about this book called Ona Judge Outwits the Washington by Gwendolyn Hooks. And I said, oh, you'll, it's really interesting. It's about this woman who was enslaved by George Washington and she escaped and never got caught. And the boy looked at me and he said, wait, George Washington had slaves? And I Mm -hmm. said, yeah, he did. He had a plantation in Virginia and he enslaved hundreds of people there. And I just waited and let him process that for a minute. And he looked at me and he said, I thought George Washington was a good guy. And so we had a pretty interesting conversation. There were about four other second graders there, and we talked about that. We talked about how it's quite possible to be a very flawed person and make history. You know, the mm-hmm. fact that, that you know, George Washington is widely, widely honored for the huge role he played in the founding of America, right? His work as the, the commander of the Continental Army and America's first president. And at the same time, you know, all of that is true. But it's also true that this was a man who enslaved hundreds of people and worked even after he was president to keep people enslaved. Both of those things are true. And, you know, the if we can talk to kids about the idea to hold both of thing, those things in our minds, right? Both of those things mm-hmm. are true. It's not all hero or all villain. Um, people are complex and people in history were complex. And so um, it was a great conversation and these kids were so there for it. And these were second graders, you know? So we were winding down and this boy looked at his librarian. He said, so we're gonna get that series, right? Because I told him about history smashers and what it was doing. He said, we're gonna get that series, right? Will you get that for us? She said, yep, I wrote it down. He goes, and that book about that lady who escaped from George Washington, I wrote that down too. So uh, she was, you know, I'm grateful that, that they, those kids have the librarian they do. But I think these are really important conversations to have with kids and and ideas to trust them with. Kids can handle so much more complexity than we give them credit for. And I think often they can handle it better than adults. I was wondering, do you go into the Women's March of 1913 and Ida, Ida um, B. Wells being told she couldn't march? Yeah, yeah. Well, so she was told to march in the back, um, mm. you know, and and it was it was a situation where there was a lot of catering to Southern white women, um, you know, because the people planning that march um, were were personally in favor of black women also getting the right to vote. But they also they were kind of playing both sides. They didn't want to offend the Southern white women who would rather not vote themselves then also have black women have the right to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and so their their you know so-called compromise was, look, you can march, but you have to march in the back. Uh, and so, you know, Ida B. Wells uh, Burnett was was furious uh, and rightfully so. 
And um, she didn't, you know, she she said, yeah, whatever. Um, and then she marched right in the middle of the parade with, you know, the women from her state as as it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of defy that. And that, yeah, that story is is very much a part of it, along with with um, Ida B. Wells Burnett's work uh, in the anti-lynching movement. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, thank you. It's 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 a tough thing. It's and it's 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 an issue that's left out of so many books about suffrage and suffragists. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we talk about, yay, you know, um, Ellis Paul and yay, Susan B. Anthony. And and it never, they never seem to get to that part of the story. And again, it's the complexity. People can do good work and do harm. And it's important to talk about both, right? If we want to do better. Um, so it's it's interesting, you know, we, we and, and with the um, the anniversary coming up, you know, 2020 is the, the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. And I've seen so many uh, little ads and things that say, oh, it's the anniversary of women getting the right to vote. Well, it's, <laughs> it's not, actually. It's the anniversary of white women getting mm-hmm. the right to vote, which for sure, step forward. But, you know, when we ignore the fact, when we erase the fact that so many women were excluded from that, uh, we're, we're doing an injustice to history. You were the first author that I saw that was very visibly pushing to get rights for reading picture books online during the pandemic and gathering resources. Did you just see the need? Yeah, I mean, when this first happened, so many um, schools and teachers were blindsided. It came down really fast. Uh, and I think the severity of it was something that we didn't really understand. And then suddenly we we sort of did understand. So I know so many teachers who said goodbye to their kids on a Friday afternoon, expecting to see them on Monday morning, but then learned, you know, on Sunday night that no school is closed for a while. And oh, by the way, it's closed for the rest of the school year later on. Um, so so these people were stranded. I mean, there were teachers stranded at home without any of their stuff. They didn't have their books. The kids didn't have their books. They didn't have anything. Um, in those those first few weeks, especially, there was just a huge need to provide something, you know, some sense of comfort, some sense of normalcy. Um, and so we did. We put together a, a you know, a, a group of authors who just said, hey, I'm going to read this picture book online. It'll be here through the end of the school year. Um, you know, it's not something that's sustainable to do all the time. You know, we have to respect copyright. But at the same time, so many of us just wanted to provide some comfort during those those weeks of transition. Um, so I just basically gathered all that stuff together and created a, a library of resources. So picture book read alouds and first chapter read alouds and uh, people sharing mini lessons and and drawing lessons, things like that. Grace Lynn has some amazing, amazing, uh, you know, how to draw a Chinese dragon, things like that. Um, That was my mom's favorite. My mom's 81 and she's at home, you know, practicing drawing Grace's (laughs) Chinese dragon. Um, But they, they, you know, just a lot of uh, variety in terms of lessons and just some connection and something familiar for kids. Um, And I feel like, you know, in the first weeks, especially, uh, those videos got just tens of thousands of views uh, while everybody was figuring it out. And then, of course, schools figured out what they were going to do and how they were going to deliver curriculum. And I think the need is a little bit less now than it was. But in those first couple of weeks, it just seemed like the need was was huge. And so I was really glad we were able to you know, put some resources together to, to bridge the gap. Well, we are, too. I was in that boat. Um, my daughter 
was in kindergarten and uh, we were completely at sea. We just didn't know what to do. And it was really, really reassuring and comforting to see everybody sort of come together like that. And my poor, <laughs> my poor kid just had no idea what was happening. And it was really nice to sit her down in front of like a drawing lesson from somebody whose books she was familiar with, you know, or somebody doing a read aloud. It was, it was a huge comfort. So thank you. Oh, that's really nice to hear. That was our hope. We do like to ask everybody, being a Newberry podcast, if you happen to have any particular Newberry books that are your favorites. Oh, oh, I have too many favorites. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. I loved um, Meg Medina's Mercy Suarez Changes Gears. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of my my favorites. You know, I, I love that one. I love Kelly Barnhill's The Girl Who Drank the Moon. Um, I probably have too many favorites. <laughs> <laughs> we can relate. We can absolutely relate. Um, yeah, when when Mercy Suarez won, we were literally screaming, screaming and jumping up and down. We were so excited. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was probably one of the moments in our kitchen because we always we always if you know, my daughter wasn't home this year. Uh, that year because uh, she was at college, but it was, um, oh, it was so exciting. It's just, it's always such a, a big moment when that's announced. And when it's one of your favorites, it's like, ah. Also, Meg Medina is so nice. I just, I was looking, I was flipping through some pictures of Newberry authors and I saw her and she's one of those people that you just see her face and it makes you smile. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> she is a lovely, lovely human and a great teacher too. I have to tell you, I was at a a writing retreat that where Meg was leading a, a morning talk when I was working on Chirp. And one of the things she said um, during her talk, which she's since given me permission to share, um, is, is I don't have it right in front of me, but something along the lines of, um, we write for the child inside of us who is still asking the questions that we didn't dare ask. And it, that just resonated with me so much and, and really played into the themes of Chirp, the questions that we didn't dare to ask when we were kids, but those questions that are still inside. Um, so yeah, she's, she's an amazing teacher and an amazing writer and an amazing person. So right now, I actually just turned in a draft of a book that is a follow-up to one of my um, 2020 titles. And that book is, the 2020 book is a picture book called The Next President. And it's all about what future presidents were doing when any given president took his oath of office. Because I did some research, I fell down a rabbit hole of research one day, wondering how many presidents future presidents are alive at any given time. Hmm. And I learned that when George Washington was sworn into office, for example, there were nine future presidents alive in America. And, you know, some of them were hanging out in the Capitol with him. John Adams was his vice president and Jefferson was secretary of state. But some of them were just kids. They were, you know, um, growing up on the the farm in Kentucky and feeding chickens or off fishing on the frontier. Um, And so that's what this book is about. It's about where future presidents were when any given president took the oath of office. Um, And that's the next president. So I spent much of this spring working on a follow-up to that called The Next Scientist, all about the childhoods of famous scientists who are doing important work in the world, some whose names you'll know and some whose names you won't, Um, but what their childhoods were like and and kind of speculating what our future scientists, the generation that will take over this work, 
what they might be doing right now. Um, so I spent a lot of time working on that. Um, right now, I'm working on book six in the History Smashers series because series go fast, uh, which is wild to think about, even though the first books haven't quite come out yet. Um, we're already working on book six, um, and that is History Smashers, Plagues and Pandemics, mm. all about plagues and pandemics in history, um, and then working its way up to some of our modern plagues and pandemics from, um, you know, Ebola to SARS to COVID-19. So um, that one's been fascinating to work on as well. How to Write a Story uh, is also out July 7th. Um, from Chronicle Books. It's a picture book illustrated by Mark Siegel. And this is a follow-up to a book that we had called How to Read a Story. That's just this grand, colorful celebration of the reading process. It's a playful look at the steps in sharing a story aloud. And after Mark and I um, worked together on that and Chronicle put it out, we all decided it would be fun to do the same thing for a book that celebrates the writing process from brainstorming to planning to revising and sharing your work. And so that's what How to Write a Story is all about. Wow, that's perfect. Well, it's crazy. I actually had that exact conversation, specifically how a picture book is made with my daughter today. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that'll come in handy. I know. She's like asking me all about it. And she's like, and so then the writer, um, they give the story and then the illustrator draws the pictures for the story. And I was like, yeah. And she goes, who helps them staple it? <laughs> was, yeah, well, you know. <laughs> I was like, it's not, it's not like that, but... <laughs> At the end of the day, it kind of is. There's there's a, a big team of people who help us staple it. <laughs> yes. Well, it kind of got that point across. And she's like, hmm, okay. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love that. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. It was a joy to talk books with you. Same. And congratulations on your year of 12 books. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our interview with the wonderful Kate Messner, the author of many, many books in 2020. And please check our social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Newberry Tart for information on how to win your very own copy of the very cute How to Write a Story. Thanks for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.